invite you to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to read the first nine verses. This is, again, uh, a two-part. This is the second half of a two-part study of these first nine verses in Matthew 19. We looked at it last week. The first, we really went through the first five verses last week, so we will begin in our study time, picking up with verse six, but we'll, we'll go ahead and read all nine. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and if you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in our overflow, and we also have Bibles here in the vestibule, and we would love for you to pick up a copy of God's Word as our gift to you today. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9. If you're able, would you please stand in honor of the reading of this portion of Scripture. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking... Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning... It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thank you. What about divorce? What about divorce? Again, it's a question we need to be asking, but one that we don't like to ask, certainly doesn't feel comfortable to ask, but one that we desperately need to hear from the Lord and in the power of His Spirit to live out His will and purpose in our lives. Let's pray together, ask God to help us. Father, we love you and praise you. We we give you glory. We, we've enjoyed our time of fellowship and worship already and the, the singing of Behold Our God. That's really so much of why we gather on Sunday mornings to come together and to adore you, to behold you, to give you glory and honor, to sing, to pray, and to seek you in your word. 
that, Father, we might do what we've been created to do as to worship. And so it's a delight, it's a joy for us to be able to to do what you've called us to do together as, as your family, together as the body of Christ, and to be together in this place and with one voice glorify and worship the one true God. And now we come, Lord, and we submit to your word. We, we hunger for your word, and we are asking, God, that we might be changed into your likeness because of our time together. Such an important matter, Father, for us to talk from Scripture about marriage and about divorce and your will and your purpose and why you designed marriage the way you designed it and what it's for and how it's lived out in our lives over a lifetime. We need so much in us as your people, as your sons and as your daughters to persevere, Lord, in this life throughout all of the different ideas and all of the different emotions and all of the different sayings and practices for marriage and for divorce that we might, as your people, Lord, be different and be able in our lives and in our marriages to put forth the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as the treasure that it is. But we need help, Lord. We need grace that our marriages might be protected, that our marriages might be saved, that our lives together as husbands and wives, that our lives now as single adults or students, Lord, might be set on a path of purity and holiness and devotion to you. And that can only happen by the power of the grace of God in our lives. There's too much wrong within us and there's too much wrong without us for us to be able to live this life for your glory apart from your great grace in our lives. We come to you praying, we come to you begging, we come to you asking God to fill us with your spirit, Lord, fill us with your word, help us to deny sin, deny self, deny the courses of this world and be the bridge in the path that you lay out before us. So thank you for the work that you're going to do in hearts and in homes today, future homes today, as you speak to us and you change us and you build your church. We love you and we ask you for these great things to be accomplished. For your glory in Christ's name, amen. So if you missed last week, I hope you'll be able to go back on our Facebook page or on the sermon audio page and listen or watch last week's message. The, the big idea from the first part of this passage that we looked at last week was that we, first of all, we have to come to a biblical understanding of marriage first, 
Before we can arrive at a, a godly biblical view of divorce, we, we first have to have a, a godly biblical view of marriage. That's where it begins. And if we're going to gain a, a godly view of marriage, a God's purpose and intent for marriage, then we have to go back to the very beginning. We have to go back to Genesis. We, we look at God's creative order. We look at how he designed, when he first created, how he created, how he designed, how he structured the world, his creation, and even how he structured marriage. And in so doing then, we see clearly his purpose, his intention for us. And that's precisely how Jesus answers the Pharisees' question on divorce. They ask him a question about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And when he answers their question on divorce, he answers by talking about marriage. And when he talks about marriage, he's taking them back to Genesis chapter 1. He says, back to the beginning. Go back there. Know what marriage is. And then you'll know how to answer the divorce question. Now, when Jesus points back to Genesis 1 to establish God's purpose in marriage, he sums up how to view marriage by by emphasizing the great mystery of marriage. The two shall become one. And so he says there in in verse 6, he expands on that. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. And last week we observed from that summary verse, and if you'll look at the text with me, in, in verse 5, he says, And said therefore, and he's quoting Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, which is God's, after he brings Eve to Adam and the first wedding occurs, then God makes a statement about why he has marriage this way. Why has he established marriage to look like this? And he gives this statement which is what Jesus quotes here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Now, we looked at that last week. We started looking at verse 5, and, and we, we made some observations that true marriage then consists of one man and one woman, that marriage is to be lived out as husbands are holding fast to his wife. But Jesus doesn't explain those points when speaking of marriage. He goes right to the heart of marriage to highlight that when God summarized marriage in Genesis 1, marriage that God established, God created, that God defined marriage this way. Two shall become one flesh. Two shall become one. And then Jesus says, Therefore, if God has joined it together, do not let man separate. Marriage then results, if we look back there at, in verse 6, marriage results in the two becoming one. That's where we left off last week, so let's pick up there this week. Marriage results in the two becoming one. Now, over in Ephesians 5, Paul calls this, Paul also quotes this, Genesis 1, 27, 
And Paul says, this is a great mystery. How the two become one, that's a great mystery. In other words, we know this is God's view of marriage. We know this is what happens in marriage when God brings husband and, and wife together. We, we, we know that, that, that two become one. We just have a hard time figuring all that out and living all of that out in the day to day. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Men and women are, we're both created by God, created in his image, created for his glory, created to worship. But we are so very different in a host of ways. We are man and we are woman. And on top of that, when, when a man and a woman come together in marriage, even as believers, now you have two sinners living together and hopefully pursuing God together. So now there's not only one person's sin that you're dealing with each and every day, but now there are Two people and and all of their sin that's being dealt with together. There's a great book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. It's a great book. Fleshing out this truth. So we, we, we toss double the sin into the equation. And it makes living out the two, becoming one, difficult at times. To say the least. Most of married life is is figuring out how to live now as two who are now one. Making decisions, compromising, planning, denying self, asking forgiveness, extending forgiveness. All are a part of walking through life as one instead of two. But that is precisely where God does most of his sanctifying work in the married couple. As the man learns to be the spiritual leader and example Christ in the marriage, God is constantly molding and trimming and shaping and conforming him into the image of Christ through that process of him learning how to become one and learning how he examples Christ in this relationship that has a divine stamp upon it. As the woman learns how to be the companion and and to model church, the church in the marriage, God is constantly molding her and trimming her and shaping her and conforming her into the image of his son. And so the reality is God is using this lifelong process of the two shall be one to make this man more like the man of God he has designed him to be, to make this woman more like the woman of God he has designed her to be. And so the reality that two have now become one, that reality takes a lifelong to pursue. 
just like the reality of becoming a new creation in Christ then takes a lifetime to pursue. So Jesus concludes, since since God created marriage, since God has designed it with this divine touch and divine purpose that in marriage two individuals are now one, since God has declared these two are now joined together, They are no longer two, but they are one, Jesus says. Since God made marriage that way, that's what's happening in a marriage relationship. So you're no longer talking about two, but one. And so that mysterious, glorious, divine bond of holy matrimony should never be separated by man. Marriage is a work of God that is not to be undone by man. In other words, Jesus is saying, if they're now one, you can't make them two. You see, marriage is to display and to picture salvation in Christ. Man modeling Christ, the wife modeling the church. And we would all agree as Baptists and as Bible readers and believers that when you are joined to Christ and in union with Christ and have become one with Christ, you cannot be separated. That's what Jesus is teaching. Marriage is an earthly, temporary picture of a heavenly, eternal reality meant to portray salvation. And since man cannot undo God's work of salvation, he should not undo God's work of marriage. That's the answer. That's the answer to the question of divorce. So when you understand marriage, you understand divorce should not happen. That's exactly why Jesus says, wait a minute, you're asking the the wrong question first. Before you can talk about divorce, let's talk about marriage. And then you'll understand Divorce. But the Pharisees are not satisfied with Jesus' answer, are they? Again, they're not there to learn truth from Christ in order to live by truth. They're there, the scripture says, in order to test him, in order to trap him. And so if they can't get him in one question, then they've, they've, already, they've already kind of anticipated how he's going to answer. So they're ready for this second question. If we can't get him to lose his popularity by giving an unpopular answer to the first question, 
then we can, we can cause him to lose his popularity by disagreeing with Scripture. We can get him to deny Scripture. Then we can discredit his entire message and everything about him. So they press him further with this follow-up question from verse 7. In other words, they didn't even pay attention to what he just said. They didn't, they, it just glided over them. It just rolled right over them, went, went right past them in one ear and out the other. They were not concerned with the truth. Let us not be that way with any truth, but with this truth today. Singles and married people, let us not let this just pass over us like they did. They were just itching for him to say something so they could get to the next question and in their minds stick it to him. And so in verse 7, they said, oh, yeah, that we were hoping he was going to say something like that. So we got him, Deuteronomy 24.1, right? So they said to him, why then did Moses command us to give us a certificate of divorce and send her away? And they're high-fiving each other. Yes, we got him. He's spoken against the law, Scripture. As we looked at this last week, right, Deuteronomy 24, 1, the Bible says, If a man finds an indecency in his wife, he may write her a certificate of divorce. And we discussed the two interpretations. That's not that word, indecency, last week. But that's not where Jesus goes, is it? Jesus' interpretations of the word indecency found there. And the reason why he doesn't is he knows precisely what verse they have in mind, and he knows precisely why they are asking. He knows their intention, and so he answers their probing, testing question in a way they were not expecting. They were not anticipating. They thought they had him. There's no way he can get out of this one. And he said to them in verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Let's just get right down to the truth, Jesus says. It's because you have sin in your life. It's because of sin in your life. And so that's where we're at now. Sin is the root of divorce. So the purpose of the law in Deuteronomy 24.1 was not to condone divorce or even to endorse divorce the purpose of 24 of Deuteronomy 24:1 was to restrict the practice of divorce it shouldn't be happening again it was not so from the beginning what god has put together let not man separate this should not be happening But because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says this, that the law was our guardian until Christ came. Which means this, in other words, one purpose of God's law, it's not the only purpose, but one purpose of God's law was to put a fence around our fallen nature. If somebody doesn't build a boundary, put a wall around us, we will sin, we will literally sin ourselves to death. 
That's why parents, we have to put a no wall around our kids at some point. There has, we, we have, the one purpose of the law is to, is to keep us from sinning as much as we will sin if there are no restrictions. Which is why in a society it's so important to have things like the police. Because if you don't put a restriction around our fallenness, we will absolutely unravel out in public. That's what one of the purposes of the law. So that was Deuteronomy 24.1. It wasn't saying, oh yeah, divorce is grand. No, it was saying, you're going to sin, your heart's going to be heart, divorce is going to happen, so we're going to keep it here until Christ comes. The purpose of the law was to be our guardian until Christ comes. In other words, the law was to keep sin in check, to keep it as restricted as possible. As a matter of fact, as you're, as you're reading through the Old Testament, if you're reading through the Bible this year, I hope you are, I hope you're still at it, keep at it, pick it up if you've If you've let it down, pick it back up. But you'll notice this as you're reading through the Old Testament, you'll have this narrative that somebody somebody does commits a horrible sin. And then right after that, there's a lot of there's a lot of laws given. And then there's another narrative about sin. And then there's a lot of more laws given. Then there's another narrative about sin. And then there's a lot of more. And that's basically the rhythm of the Old Testament. What's happening? We sin, and God says, nope. We sin, and God says, nope. (laughs) And he's keeping us until Christ comes, until we have that new covenant to obey and honor him. The restriction around us now, as we're not under the law, we're under grace. It doesn't mean we look at the law and say, no more for you. It means that the restrictive power around our lives is now what we call the Holy Spirit. Who keeps us from due to divorce. For, In other words, Moses allowed you to divorce for indecency. In other words, If it's going to happen, this is the only way it's going to happen, the only reason it's going to happen, and that is adultery. Because if that law wasn't given, if that restriction wasn't put in place, then sinners would divorce all the time for any reason whatsoever. Sound familiar? Actually, that's what they were asking in verse 3 isn't it again there's nothing new under the sun look at verse 3 the pharisee said is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause no restriction that's exactly how sinners in jesus's day had used deuteronomy 24 1 they had expanded that use of the word indecency And tragically, how so many in our day view divorce as well. But again, Jesus is teaching what? He's saying, you're asking the wrong question. If God has joined us together in a holy union to display the gospel, and man is not to separate God's work, 
The real question then is, then why do we still have divorce? And the answer is, Jesus says, because we still have sin. Because we still have sin. Sin is the root. Listen to me carefully. Sin is the root under every divorce. Every one. One or both parties in the marriage are continuing in a sin that is ripping apart what God has joined together. That sin might be as egregious as the horrible betrayal of something such as adultery. Or it could be the sin that is as simple as just treating marriage as trivial as you possibly can, much like a dating relationship. You date for a while, you break up. You're married for a while, you divorce. Which is a sinful way to treat a divine institution. Abuse can lead to divorce. Refusing to submit to one another in God's purpose and design for marriage can lead to divorce. There's all kinds of things that can lead to divorce, but all of them are sin. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. The right question then is what leads to divorce if God does not intend for us to divorce? And the answer is sin. How then do couples resolve their differences or their offenses that have led them to consider divorce? And Jesus says this. It's right here in the text, isn't it? But from the beginning, it was not so. Again, the answer for us, even today, not just in Jesus' day, But even today, the answer for us is to go back to the beginning. Husband and wife, go back to the beginning. Go back to God's purpose for marriage. The meaning of marriage as God defines it. Recognize that that one or both in this marriage have, have departed from God's good design and purpose. And repent and forgive, and confess, and heal, and live out, the two are now one. From the beginning, it wasn't so. Sometimes it's grueling, difficult labor to revive a dying marriage, a strained marriage, a cold marriage. It takes prayer. It takes counseling. It takes all parties involved. Sometimes it takes others getting involved to help and encourage the process. It takes encouragement. It takes devotion to the Lord and one another. It takes an honest assessment of whether or not we are actually in the faith It takes time. It takes all of these things. But if you can save your marriage, 
and avoid divorce, all the painstaking labor will be worth it. The truth is, if sin is the root of divorce, divorce is not the answer. It won't solve the problem that led to divorce. It will only grow and produce more sin. The the fallout of divorce is not only the damage that divorce brings to all the relationships involved. It's also the sin. The sin that's left covered and unconfessed and unrecognized, unrepented. And that hasn't properly been dealt with through confession and repentance. That sin continues in that person's life or in both of those people's lives and it continues to fester and multiply and grow and change and transform into more sin. Sin is always progressive. Sin doesn't stop when the marriage ends. The problem doesn't cease when the marriage ends. And that leads us to point three in verse nine. Unrepentant sin that leads to divorce results in further sin. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. I want us to look at this verse for the next few minutes and just examine it. First of all, let's set aside what's called the exception clause. So the words except for sexual immorality... Let's just set those aside, then we'll, we'll bring them back and deal with them. So without, that, without the qualifying exception clause, the verse would read this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So you see, sin begets further sin. You just bring unconfessed sin into another marriage, and that sin grows into more sin. The answer is not divorce. The answer is not a new husband. The answer is not a new wife, a new marriage. That's one of the oldest lies of the enemy. And you know the saying, the grass always seems greener, On the other side. But that's actually not the answer. That's the deception of the flesh and of the world and of the enemy. The answer is to repent of sin because it lives there too. The answer is to repent of sin, forgive, and, and work out the two are now one. Joined together. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That verse. And if you take out that exception, exactly the way Mark in his gospel says Jesus taught on divorce. Now let's go back to that exception clause. And this clause, this exception clause, except for sexual immorality, has, has caused much trouble for biblical interpretation throughout our history. 
And that's why we're going to have a special Bible study tonight. I want you to be here tonight, 6 o'clock. Bring your Bible, bring a notebook, bring something to write with. And we're going to walk through and discuss four main passages on divorce and remarriage and four, the four main views of how to understand and apply those passages. Four views of divorce and remarriage tonight, 6 o'clock. So we're going to dig deep into this exception Clause, But for now, we can say this. It appears, at least on a surface reading, Jesus is teaching that, one, that the one thing that can break the two now becoming one is if someone in the two becoming one, if someone sinfully brings in another into that union. It will rip it apart. It will tear it down. Adultery breaks and rips and tears and shreds at the union of two who are now one. And that actually, when Jesus says that, Matthew records it in verse 9, that's actually a restatement of the proper interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1, indecency. Jesus is now clarifying what that verse teaches. In other words, Jesus is disagreeing with the Pharisees on divorce. He's not disagreeing with Scripture. They set out to trap Jesus in a discussion on the hot-button issue of divorce. And he turned the tables on them to show them what needed to happen here is not to trap him and discredit his ministry. What needs to happen here is they need to repent of their view of marriage and divorce because it's not God's view. And maybe... We do too. Maybe we as husbands and wives need to repent of how we've been thinking about marriage and how some of us have been thinking about divorce. And just maybe our single adults and our students today need to rethink biblically how to view an upcoming marriage for a lifetime I want to conclude with this thought I I hope you still have your Bibles open here because uh, I just think it's very interesting if you think about where we've been studying through the gospel of Matthew I think it's very interesting that Jesus teaches on repentance if you look back we've just studied these passages together Jesus teaches on repentance in Matthew chapter 18 verses 15 through 20 remember he says there if your brother offends you that means if a fellow Christian offends you and that fellow Christian that offends you might be your husband might be your wife if your brother offends you essentially He teaches through this process, but essentially he's saying, call them to repentance. 
And if they're so stubborn and unwilling to, to learn, bring the church and bring Christian counselors and friends into the equation, call them to repentance. He's teaching on repentance. And, and at the end of that lesson, we understand that, that what's being said there is that true believers will eventually repent. A true believer, no matter how hardened and determined in sin he or she has become, will eventually repent. The unbeliever will not repent. And that brings up another issue. But he teaches on repentance. And then in the next passage, we studied this together. In verses 21 through 35, Jesus teaches on forgiveness. Forgiveness. So if your spouse repents, forgive them. And as we look through that passage together, when we come to the end of that passage, we realize one of the things Jesus was saying is that true believers will forgive. It may take time. It may take a lot of prayer, a lot of counseling, a lot of work. But true believers will forgive because they have experienced the unbelievable forgiveness of God. And then, catch this, he teaches on repentance, he teaches on forgiveness, and then he teaches on marriage. Which is where we have to learn to do a lot of repenting and forgiving. The only actions that can save a marriage when sin is present, are repentance and forgiveness. Let's pray. You have been listening to the sermon ministry of Will Owens, pastor of Grassy Pond Baptist Church, Gaffley, South Carolina. Be sure to visit willowens.com to hear more sermons, read blogs, and learn more about the missions branch, P67 Missions. Again, thank you for listening to Will Owens.